Welcome to Pod to the Rescue, a podcast from Summit Dog Rescue in Boulder, Colorado. I'm Emily. And I'm Libby. We're both professional dog trainers with multiple certifications in dog training and behavior. Together, we have more than two decades of experience in dog rescue. We want to share everything we've learned along the way with other folks involved in dog rescue, sheltering, fostering, and adoption, and anyone who just loves dogs. Rescuing the dog is just the first step. We're here to help with everything that comes next. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Pod to the Rescue. Today, we are bringing you a super interesting interview with Zazie Todd. She's author of the new book, Purr, The Science of Making Your Cat Happy. It was a wonderful conversation. Um, Most people don't know that even though we are Summit Dog Rescue, we also rescue cats and kittens. And so we've been doing this podcast for a little bit over a year, and we have not yet ever broached the subject of feline behavior. So this was a wonderful conversation and the book is incredible. And I highly recommend anyone who loves their cat or has a cat or is interested in cats to get this book. It's an easy read, but just chock full of incredible, well-researched information. Yeah, Zazie's an incredible writer and she makes the science of behavior really approachable to everyone. Um, Her blog, Companion Animal Psychology, is another great resource that we'll put in the show notes for anyone who's interested in learning more about the behavior of our dogs and their cats. Zazie Todd, PhD, is the award-winning author of WAG, The Science of Making Your Dog Happy, and Purr, The Science of Making Your Cat Happy. Both books share practical tips for happier dogs and cats, and the science to back them up. She is the creator of Companion Animal Psychology blog, and her writing has appeared in places such as Modern Cat, Modern Dog, Inside Your Cat's Mind, Inside Your Dog's Mind, and Prima Magazine. Todd has a PhD in psychology, is an honors graduate of the prestigious Academy for Dog Trainers, and has an advanced certificate of feline behavior with distinction from international cat care. Originally from the UK, she lives in Maple Ridge, British Columbia, with her husband, one dog, and two cats. We really hope that you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. And here it is. Hello, Zazie Todd, and welcome to Pod to the Rescue. Hi, thank you for inviting me to come and chat with you. We are so excited to talk about your book, Purr, The Science of Making Your Cat Happy. Um, it's a fabulous little book. Well, not even little, but I learned so much (laughs) and it was so interesting and I'm not even a cat person. So congratulations on a job well done. Thank you very much. (laughs) Yeah. And even though we're a dog rescue, funny enough, we rescue a lot of cats. And so I just loved reading the book and I felt like Um, one of those people who thought they knew a lot about cats because I've had cats for 30 years and fostered probably several hundred in my life. And reading the book, I was like, oh, wow, there's a lot more that I could be doing to help my cats. I think that's the really exciting thing at the moment is there has been more research on feline science and what we know about cats. So we all know a lot more than we used to. And there's a whole lot of things that we never used to do or never used to think about. And at the same time, the lives of cats has changed as they've been less useful for catching mice. We're not expecting them to be catching mice in our homes anymore. Uh, And we're more likely to keep them indoors. So the circumstances in which we keep cats has actually really changed. And they're definitely thought more of as family members too. So Yeah, I think it's really fascinating stuff. I could talk about cats all day, but I know we've only got limited time. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that that, uh, what you just said really speaks to why this book is so important for cat guardians, because a lot has changed even within the last, oh, even 10, 15 years in cats' lives. That's right. And when I was much younger and still living in England and had cats, they were allowed outdoors during the daytime. And back then I would have thought it's cruel to keep a cat indoors. Um, And now here I am in Canada and I keep my cats indoors. And I think given where I live and the coyotes and the black bears and cougars and so on, I think it would be wrong to let them outdoors. Um, But 
it's obviously a very nuanced discussion and everyone has to make the decision that's right for their cat. But things have really changed a lot. And also in terms of how we think about cats, what we expect from them too. Mm-hmm. I find that so interesting because we talk a lot about um, in this podcast about dogs being captive animals and how that shift happened from dogs just wandering the neighborhood to now being mostly in our homes. And that the same thing has happened for cats And so we have to rethink the way we provide for their environmental needs um, if we're going to have happy, successful relationships with our cats and have happy cats. So maybe we should dive into some of the beautiful meat in the book, which is, um, can, can you talk about this myth that we have that cats are a low maintenance pet that you can just kind of have and not put a lot of energy into? Yeah, I think a lot of people think cats are very easy pets that you don't have to do very much. And they, in some ways, they are definitely easier than dogs. You don't have to take them for a walk, for example. You can actually take them. Some people do take them for leash walks or adventure walks now, but you don't have to. You're not expected to. And so people think they don't have to do very much for their cat. But Actually, especially if a cat is indoors, then you have to make up for the fact that they can't go outside. They can't find their own enrichment anymore. They're stuck indoors and we have to do more for them. And actually, there's some research that I mentioned in the book, which found that the number one welfare issue affecting pet cats is behavior issues because of a poor home environment. And the more that we do for our cats, the better we make the environment for them, actually, the less likely they are to have behavior issues. And that also means the more likely they will have a good relationship with us as well. So the more we put in, the better it is for them and for us. So what does a good environment for a cat look like for an indoor cat? So we talk about the five pillars of a healthy environment for a cat, and that would include having safe spaces where they can go because a cat's natural response to something stressful is really to run and hide. And if you think of cats as being prey animals as well as predators, um, they, you know, they're used to the idea that things like coyotes might be out to get them. So they want to be able to run and hide. So a safe space is one of the most important things. It's also important to have multiple separated key environments environmental resources and that means anything that's important to the cat and this is especially important in a multi-cat home because cats shouldn't have to share their scratching posts or their food bowls or their beds they should each have their own and have access to them they need opportunities for play and predatory behavior Um, that's very important that's some of the normal behaviors that cats do so that taps into those uh, five freedoms or five domains whichever way you want to think about it They need to have consistent, positive, predictable interactions with us. And also one thing that many people don't know about is that cats have amazing noses. And so we also have to take their sense of smell into account as well. I read read that in the book that a lot of the things they do, they do the rubbing and the scratching has to do with scent and pheromones. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that's right. So um, scent and pheromones are actually really important for cats. Pheromones are chemical signals that have meaning. So to give an example, when your cat comes and rubs their head on you, you know, they do that lovely head rubbing thing uh, called bunting um, they're actually depositing pheromones from scent glands they have scent glands all around their head and in their cheeks so they're depositing those pheromones on you and you probably also see your cat do this to furniture and again spots in the home where they're depositing those pheromones and it's believed that that helps to give them a feeling of safety Um, and there's still a lot that we don't know about this though so it's still something that we need a lot more research into but it's believed to be important between cats cats who get on with each other and are part of the same social group will rub their heads together and sometimes their whole bodies and wrap their tails together and that's believed to be developing a group scent um apologies if you just heard my dog sneeze (laughs) (laughs) background dog noises are always acceptable in this podcast (laughs) Um, And so scent is very, very important. And when we do things with strong cleaners, for example, it can make the cat quite unhappy. And yet, if you think of many uh, litters that are available on the market, a lot of them actually have a strong scent. Um, And a lot of the cleaning products that we use, for example, in bathrooms, which is a place where we tend to put the litter box, 
cats don't like those strong smells. They would really rather that we didn't use them. And another example of how we can use it is because cats like to make their own scent on things. If we're washing the cat's bedding, ideally we're not going to wash all of the bedding at once. You want to leave something that's so they still have something that smells of them. And in a shelter environment, that means that actually you're you're, that might mean you're actually spot cleaning as much as you can rather than taking everything out of their cage or room and washing everything all at once. As much as you can, you'll try and make sure that you're leaving something that will still smell of the cat because it will help them to feel more comfortable and more at home. That's fascinating. And we talk so much on the podcast about setting up our environment to help dogs succeed. And the same is true for cats. And I never really thought about the way that all of these uh, subtle scents can interact with their environment in ways that we as humans just wouldn't necessarily recognize. That's really, yeah, that's important. Yeah, and another example, which is actually something people ask me about often is, why does my cat like to lie on top of my stinky gym kit when I've just been to the gym and I've dumped it on the floor? And it's because it smells of you and your cat likes you. And so it helps to make your cat feel more secure. Oh, <laughs> reading this book, I felt like so many things in our home environments aren't set up correctly for cats and that cats are almost set up to fail with some of the expectations that we have of them, like not being on countertops and, you know, not being okay if they're scratching our furniture. Um, how can we kind of bridge that gap with like explaining to guardians or fosters, you know, the needs of the cat and how can you make your house acceptable so that the cat isn't living in stress by not having its environmental needs met? That's a really great question. And I think a lot of it comes down to understanding what cats need and helping people to realize that, for example, scratching is a natural behavior. So you can't expect to punish your cat and they're going to stop scratching because A, they have to still scratch and B, punishment is not going to be good for them. Just like for dogs, it's much better to use reward-based training methods if you want to train your cat. So we have to provide them with somewhere that they can scratch. And also they have little pads um, in their paws. And when they're scratching, they're leaving little pheromones behind. And again, this is something we need to know more about, but it seems quite likely that that's going to encourage them to scratch more in that place. So actually most people are giving a scratching post that is not suitable from their cat's perspective. And a scratching post needs to be nice and tall so that the cat will get a good stretch. And it needs to be very sturdy, again, so they can get a good scratch and really dig their claws in. And then every cat has their own preferences too. So some most cats will like sisal, but some cats, especially if they're an older cat, might prefer carpet. And some cats also like to have a horizontal scratching post. Um, and you can get scratching mats and you can get nice cardboard scratches that are quite flat as well so some of it is a bit of experimentation to see what your particular cat likes best and you can also position them strategically so that if you've got a cat who is already scratching at your sofa you might want to put your wonderful new very tall very sturdy cat tree exactly next to the sofa so that if the cat goes there they immediately have a better choice in, right there in front of them. And we also know from the research that when people give their cat positive reinforcement for using the scratching post, that also is linked with the cat being more likely to use that particular scratching post and not scratch somewhere that the person thinks is inappropriate. That's great. And it's um, a good segue to my next question, which is about the five freedoms include freedom to express natural behaviors and scratching is one of these natural behaviors that humans don't always appreciate. So what are some other important natural cat behaviors that cat owners need to know about that we might mistake for bad behavior? Yeah, I mean, that's really important. And you're absolutely right. Scratching is one of those natural behaviors. Rubbing their head on things and depositing pheromones is another one of those behaviors. And I think play and predatory behaviors would be important there too. And when you look at cats playing with toys or playing with a one toy or something, basically this is going through their predatory sequence. Um, and so it's really important to give cats opportunities to play 
and that would be play with toys on their own as well as play with toys that you're going to play with them moving the one toy about and we know from the research that people who spend longer playing with their cat with the one toy every day their cat is less likely to have behavior issues than people who only spend a really short time doing it and we also know that it because cats sometimes they will specialize in a particular type of prey but often they will go for a wide range of prey so you you'll, you should be thinking about your cat's toy wardrobe or whatever you want to call it collection as having lots of different types of prey type items in it so not just a toy mouse mouse but something big kind of like a rabbit that they can kick out with their back legs and maybe something um, maybe something like a snake or something like a lizard or something with feathers like a bird all those different types of things and then cats just like dogs will get bored of toys quite easily so you can't keep buying new toys for your cat all the time obviously I mean you might like to it's fun but what you can just do is put some of those toys away for a while um, and then when you bring them out again they will be as new so that's a good way to not have to keep spending money on cat toys. But also we like to buy toys that are sturdy and it seems quite likely that cats probably will like some toys that fall apart and that they will enjoy that falling apart. And that's maybe why they like to shred bits of paper or shred bits of cardboard, for example. So they don't necessarily have to be sturdy if the feathers come flying out. If you think of a cat actually catching a bird, the feathers will come flying out. So they probably like their toys to be a bit more realistic and they're quite happy for them to start falling apart. Is that a part of the dissection in the predatory sequence? Is that also something that cats need to do with their toys? That would be giving them opportunities to do that. Yes, that's that's a really great thing to point out. And as to the extent to which they need to do each of those steps, we don't have the research on that. But we, I think we can assume that the more opportunities they have to do that, the happier they will be. And there's also some recent research from the UK that found that when cats are with outdoors access who tend to hunt actual prey are given uh, more play opportunities with the one toy and also um, fed on a higher quality food, then they're less likely to be hunting prey outside because it's as if that uh, hunting after the toy has, has fulfilled that instinct for them. Oh, that's important, especially if you're wanting to allow your cat outdoor access, but you're concerned about other animals in the environment. Yeah, and it's something that we need more research into. But certainly, I mean, it seems like a good idea. If your cat has outdoors access and you don't want them to be catching things, one of the things you can do is make sure that they do get those chances to chase after the toy and catch the toy in your home. That's great. Yeah, I, I think I might have to start, start doing more of that with my cats. On that note, it's such a big topic and you devoted most of a chapter to it in your book. Can we touch briefly on the debate about indoor versus outdoor cats? Um, you know, growing up, our cat was an indoor-outdoor cat, and he didn't even give us a choice. He refused to use the litter box and instead waited by the door. <laughs> and so it was like, well, okay, <laughs> I guess you're going to be an indoor-outdoor cat. We tried. Um, but it's really controversial these days. Can you touch on this briefly about the debate and the benefits and drawbacks to allowing yeah. your cat outdoor access? Yeah, it is a really big topic and it's a really controversial topic. And there are a lot of different things to consider because there's the safety of your cat. There's the environment that your cat would enjoy spending time in. There is potentially the safety of uh, birds and other species, rats and mice outside that your cat might catch and all all these different things to think about, really. And I think ultimately the most important thing is that people think about what their own cat, what is going to be best for their own cat, given the environment where they live. So my own cats are indoors only. And for me, the main reason is because of the cougars and coyotes and black bears. And I just think it's not safe for them to be outdoors. But that means I have to put more effort into keeping them happy indoors. Um, and another issue for many people is birds. People don't want their cats catching birds. There is actually um, a special type of collar you can get called the Birds Be Safe Collar. And it's very brightly colored and birds are able to detect bright colors. And so some of the research shows that it, it works because birds 
can therefore see the cat coming and the cat is then less likely to catch birds. And there are quite a few people who don't want their cat catching birds, but they don't mind if the cat is catching mice, for example. So for that kind of situation, that's something that you could think about as well. Of course, if you're able to build um, a catio, cat patio type thing, that's wonderful and a really nice way to give your cat a more safe, partly outdoors experience. Or if you can enclose your backyard so that your cat can't get out and wander, um, perhaps with coyote rollers or something, because you want to know if you live somewhere with coyotes, you want to know that the coyotes aren't going to come in. So I think it's quite a, a difficult topic and there's a lot of different things to think about. One of the things that surprised me when I was researching the book was actually about coyotes, because I had assumed erroneously it turns out that if a coyote catches a cat it's because they want to eat the cat um, and there is some evidence that um, from LA where they did find um, that coyotes had unfortunately been eating some some amount of cats whether they were pet cats or feral cats it's not known but it turns out that coyotes also at certain times of year will catch and fight cats because they see the cats as uh, competition for prey because they're going to be eating rats and mice as well. So they're not necessarily going to actually catch the cat for food. They might get the cat because they see them as competition and they want to make sure that the cat isn't getting all the good food. Um, that seems to be the case as well. So when it's uh, pupping season for coyotes, I think that's when the cat is going to be especially at risk then. Um, so there's a lot of different things to talk about. And some of it is kind of a bit sad. Road traffic accidents is another big thing, because if you live near a busy road, then unfortunately, that's quite a big risk as well. But at least these days, there are lots of different ways of, of trying to manage that, of having the Casio, taking the cat on leash walks, if that's something that you want to do. And another thing that you can do is bring some of the outdoors in if you've got an indoors only cat. So you could be making sure they have a nice view from a window. It could be making sure there's a safe opening in the window so that they can still smell the fresh air coming in. But it also could be making a, what Dr. Sarah Ellis calls a sensory box and taking safe things from outside, like leaves, stones, bits of safe plants, putting them in a box and bringing them in and giving the, your cat the choice of coming and sniffing them and exploring them if they want to as well. And that's another nice way to provide some enrichment for an indoor cat. That's so smart. And I love, I always love finding these creative and low cost enrichment ideas. And you talk about some of them in your book as well, when you're talking about toys that, you know, sometimes a toy can be a rolled up piece of paper, or you can, you know, bring in leaves and twigs and branches and safe items from the outside. And that's enriching for your cat as well. Yeah. Or another one is just to tie like a hair tie on a piece of string. And then you've got, it's the, the equivalent of a one toy. You don't have to go out and buy something expensive. And that's really nice. And also one time I found Melina playing soccer, basically with an edamame bean that we dropped on the floor <laughs> by accident. And it's nice that cats will play with, you know, really cheap little things like that. It doesn't have to be expensive. And the good old cardboard boxes. Every time something arrives from Amazon, it's like a total party at our house with all the <laughs> empty boxes that the cats get in. Yeah, cardboard boxes are just wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> is there any just is there any scientific explanation for that or behavioral explanation about why cats love boxes? Well, if you think of cats liking a safe space, a box really is a nice safe space for them because it's quite enclosed. Um, and if you want to, you can tip your box upside down and cut a little cat-sized hole in to make it like a real proper hiding place. So it, it, I think it helps them to feel safe and secure because it's it's kind of cat-sized. Most cardboard boxes, are, you know, they're a good size for the cat to get in. So I think that's why. So back to that feeling of being safe, it's having safe spaces to hide. So boxes and hidey holes, places to go. And then it's also heights, right? Can you speak to like how we can provide heights for our cats? Yeah, cats like to be high up and perch. And if they're high up, they can kind of survey the area and see everything that's going on. And that's something they like too. So obviously cat condos is one way to do that. But you probably have everyone in the home has some kind of furniture, like um, a set of bookshelves or um, a dresser or something where the cat can go high up. And if you can make a space up there where the 
cat can go and be. That's good. And we've all seen these lovely examples of people putting shells on the walls. If you if you can really, you know, do that for your cat, that's really lovely because that tends to be space that we don't use. So you can make it extra spaces for the cat then that let them use height. And the important thing though, is to make sure that there's more than one way up and down, especially in a multi-cat home, because you don't want one cat to be able to block the other cat and one cat is stuck, stuck up there and can't come down. (laughs) Oh, that totally makes sense. I have a multi-cat home and that's a very good extra tip that I had not thought of. Yeah, so they, they should have uh, an escape route. But actually, there was some really interesting research that was done on shelter cats in Canada that looked at how important a hiding box is. And they had something called a choice chamber where they put the cat in the middle, everything the cat needed, like they had their litter box and food there. But they had little chambers off to the side where they could go and one had a really nice toy and one had a perch and one had a hiding box. And they looked to see where the cat chose to spend their time once they got used to being in this space. And it was actually the hiding box that was most important so that's why we think that somewhere to hide is is really important for cats and especially in a shelter environment that's quite stressful for them by definition because they're not used to it okay okay that's that's interesting um when i was reading through the book there was one quote that stood out by dr miranda workman um and i can just paraphrase instead of reading it but basically she said that we need to rethink the way the rescue and shelter community portrays cats because there is that whole dilemma. If you think about it, you go into the shelter and the cats are just in like a 24 inch by 24 inch cage. I was just recently in one of the large box pet stores, pet supply stores, and they had rescue cats just like lined up against the wall with a litter box, a bowl of food and water. And her, her point was that we're portraying to the community and, you know, people, cat owners, that this is how cats can be. And I I have to admit that that's how I used to feel. It was like, they're just okay with food and water and a litter box. So how can we, in this dilemma of, we need to rescue them and we obviously can't, you know, take in, we can't provide the environmental enrichment, but we also need to start educating our communities that they do need more than this box in the wall that that they're portrayed as in the in the shelters and the box stores. Yeah, and I love that quote from Dr. Miranda Workman. And I think she has a good point that we need to think about how we're portraying what cats need. But also it is one of those things that has really changed over the years. And people used to think that was okay. And more recently, we know that it's not. And when you do give cats a bigger environment and a more enriched environment, then they do better. And especially if you think of those small boxes, and we just talked about the importance of having multiple separated key resources and a hiding box. And if you're trying to cram all of that into a small box, everything is really close together and it's not separated. And one of the things that I've seen some shelters do is actually where they had what were single cages and they've just made a hole in between them so that each cage now is a double cage and then they can put the litter box in the other cage. And at least that is separate from the food and the water and the hiding box. And I think that's one thing that can be really effective, although, of course, now you can't fit as many cats into your cages. Um, But it is important to provide what they need and to help them be comfortable or as comfortable as possible in that environment. And that's one way in which people can do that. Yeah. And make, and I love that idea of having some hidey spots for the cats, even though then they're less on display, but at least they could feel safe when they were in those cages yeah and they might be less on display and people probably really want them to be right there at the front of the cage when they come in but when a cat comes into the shelter there is actually some research that compares cats who are given a hiding box and cats who aren't uh, and looking at the the cat stress scores which is a fairly standard way of looking at how stressed the cats are although over a period of time both sets of cats got used to being there um, the cats with the hiding box got used to it much more quickly so even though they have have this box to go and hide in they're going to be less stressed while they're there which I think actually probably might make them more visible to people sooner in a way um, because if someone's coming to look at the cat and the cat I mean cats will try and hide even in their litter tray they're kind of flattened in the litter tray that's that's not presenting them very well to people either so I think helping to make the cat feel more comfortable is important although having said that I haven't seen any research that said 
um, that it increased or sorry, shortened the adoption time. I think that remained the same in the study that I'm thinking of, but the cats did get more used to that environment when they had the hiding place. Since we're on the topic of shelters, can you talk a little bit about that clicker training in the shelter study? With That was fascinating to me. Yeah, I thought that was lovely. So there are several clicker training in the shelter studies. Um, I'm not sure exactly which one you're thinking of, but there was one that simply looked at whether it's possible. And they took shelter cats and spent a certain amount of time, um, short periods of time. I think it was just five minutes training them a trick and then came back and did it again. And over the period of the few weeks that they did the study, most of the cats learned at least some of the tricks they were being taught, even if they didn't get to the end of them. And they found that even the very shy shelter cats would start to learn tricks. So even the fearful cats could take part in this as enrichment. And then there's some other research from, um, it was actually done at the BCSPCA in Vancouver, near, near where I am. And there was a study that looked at frustrated cats. So the frustrated cats in the shelter are those ones that tip everything out in their cage. They, they tip out their food, they tip out their water bowl, they mess everything up, they put litter everywhere, they're pacing up and down, they're pouring through the cage. Um, that's what we call a, a frustrated cat. And they looked at cats like that and they had some of them just as a control condition. And then some of them took part in, I think it was twice daily. I can't remember. It's in the book anyway. Yeah. Um, I think it was twice daily. It may have been a, a little bit more, but over a period of time, they were clicker training them to do, I think, high five. Um, and the cat was allowed to walk to the room where it happened. So the first few times they were carried and then after that they were allowed to walk to the room. They had this short session, then they went back in their cage and they looked at the cat's behavior from video clips and they also looked at the cat's hormones from fecal samples and the cats that had the clicker training were more content basically, whereas the frustrated cats were, were not. So it may have just been the clicker training, but because they also got time outside of the cage and time with a person, it's hard to say exactly which aspect of it was the most important for making the cats feel more comfortable and less frustrated. But it's really nice to know that you can make a difference like that in something which really is only a short thing to do each day. It doesn't take that much time if you have a volunteer who's willing to come and do it, for example. I think that's great. And we're always trying to find ways to help our shelter listeners get more enrichment for their animals on their very limited budget with their limited staff, limited time and limited space. So even if it's a very simple interaction, the combination of interaction with a human and learning something improves the welfare of the cats. Yes. And I think that's, that's just great. lovely to know. Yeah. Yeah. Very helpful. When we've had shy cats in our program, they've been very hard to adopt out. And so we're going to have to try the clicker training and see if that will boost their confidence. That's a wonderful tool and valuable. So speaking of rescuing and sheltering, we're kind of coming to the end of uh, kitten season. And um, we have probably rescued more cats in the past couple of years than dogs, actually. But one thing we started doing in our rescue was adopting kittens in pairs, which we learned about four or five years ago. Um, and, you know, the bonding that the kittens have with one another is just, it's really sweet. And Em can speak more to this. But could you talk a little bit about the science as to why adopting kittens in pairs is now recommended? Yeah, it's it's a really good thing to do. And it's because they're still so young when they go to a new home. And so they can still be learning from each other. Um, and it's good for them to have that contact with each other. But another thing is that people often, they if they get one cat, they often end up in a situation where actually they would like to have another cat as well. But because they've got this one cat, they don't know if that cat is going to be friendly to another cat or not, because some cats would rather be the only cat in the home. And that can be quite a difficult thing. And you get a lot of people who have cats, multiple cats in the home, and maybe there's no overt fighting going on, but there may still be some stress because they'd rather not be together. And maybe one cat will be sometimes blocking one, the other cat's access, which people tend to miss, but it could just be one cat lying on the stairs, stopping the other cat from going up or in the doorway or something. So 
that's a tricky situation. And if people might want more than one cat, it's a really good idea for them just to get them together because then they're more likely to get on with each other as they grow up. It's not 100% guaranteed. Nothing is ever guaranteed in behavior, basically. But it's much, much more likely that they will continue to get on as they grow up. And it's also, it's lovely for them that they get to play together and engage in social behaviors together and it's also nice for the person watching them because you get to see them cuddle up and be cute and you know and wrestle and have fun and stuff (laughs) yeah that's great you mentioned subtle signals that humans miss like the one cat blocking the other from the stairs Um, and we love to talk about body language on this podcast Um, usually as it pertains to dogs, but (laughs) since we're talking about cats today, you write that people are notoriously bad at reading cat body language. And in fact, one study found that only 13% of participants were able to correctly discern whether cats were showing positive or negative emotions. What are the top cat body language signals that people should be aware of? Well, just like with dogs, you want to be paying attention to the whole of the cat's body. Um, But I think some of the signals that people miss will be the tail twitching, for example, especially as that gets to be a bigger, bigger swish. And I I think a common situation would be when someone is petting the cat and they don't notice the signs that the cat would like them to stop. And then in some cases, they even end up being very puzzled as to why the cat has scratched them or, or bitten them. Um, And it's because they haven't noticed the signs that the cat has had enough. And so the tail swishing would be one of them. The skin rippling might be another one or the cat fixating on the hand because it's they're they're starting to find it too much and they're fixating on the hand. Actually, that's a sign that they might be going to go for that hand sooner or later. That would be another sign as well. And also always paying attention to the ears because um, the further back or flat to the head the ears go, that's a sign that the cat is is a bit stressed and then when we're thinking more generally um, I mean a relaxed happy contented relaxed cat is perhaps going to be lied out on their side their tummy is going to be visible the tail is going to be away from the body and the eyes might be closed or semi-closed and that's another one that people sometimes miss but if you think about when people smile and their eyes kind of crinkle in a way that's kind of what's happening with with cats and their eyes as well their eyes get narrower and I think if you work in a shelter environment or you volunteer in a shelter environment there are lots of us who just get used to narrowing our eyes when we talk to a cat or even doing a slow blink when we go into a room with a cat um, and seeing if if we get a similar response from the cats just because we're trying to make the cat feel at home. But again, I think a lot of people miss that and they think, why is the cat narrowing their eyes at me? And they will stare at the cat, not realizing that if the cat is staring at them, that's not a good sign. <laughs> you know, um, a stare from a cat is actually quite an uncomfortable signal. It, it means that they're not happy with you being there, <laughs> basically, or not not happy with what you're doing. Yeah, like a hard stare from a herding dog. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that's interesting. So the blinking and the narrowing the eyes, are those uh, calming signals that humans can give to our cats? I guess that's one way of, of putting it. There, there was a piece of research that taught people how to do a slow blink to a cat. And it's not just closing your eyelid from the top. It's also lifting the bottom of your eye mm. up to meet your eyelids and just in a slow blink. And maybe sometimes you would do that and follow it with a, a little look to the side because you don't want to be staring at the cat cats don't like being stared at and they found that when people do this slow blink to a cat very often the cat will do a slow blink back at you and that's a very nice sign I mean it's it's a social behavior that you see between cats who are friends and who like each other Mm -hmm. so it's something that we can do to cats as well and and they seem to understand that it means that we're friendly (laughs) (laughs) Um, speaking about uh, cats being friendly and working with them. You talk in your book a lot about kitten socialization and there's even now kitten socialization classes. I think that's something that most of our society doesn't know about. Can you speak a little bit about kitten socialization? Yeah. So kittens, just like puppies, I think most people know that puppies have a sensitive period for socialization between three and 12 to 14 weeks. 
when a wide range of positive experience is really good for their future behavioral development. And it's the same for kittens, but it's a much more compressed time period. So it's between two and about seven weeks. And some of this we know from some, a piece of classic research by Dr. Eileen Karsh, who took kittens. She had a lab full of kittens, basically, like dream job, I think. <laughs> Why didn't I think to do this? Anyway, um, it just sounds wonderful. And she investigated what happens when you handle the kittens at different times. Um, and so she found that this period between two and seven weeks is a really important period for socialization. And that's when we want kittens to be handled by a number of different people. So there's been subsequent research that shows it's important that it's not just one person who handles the kittens. It needs to be four or five people who handle the kitten in order for them to grow up and be friendly to lots of different people. Um, and of course, it's after that period that they go into your home. So it's not like with a puppy where you, as the new owner or guardian, still have some of the socialization responsibility with a kitten that has happened before, whether you get them at eight weeks or 12 weeks. But they're still young and their brain is still plastic and growing. And so it's still important to give them um, a wide range of positive experiences that will build on what they already know. So you're just building on what they've already learned. And again, that's going to be really helpful for them growing up to be friendly confident adult cats that's fascinating to me oh. as a as a cat foster I'm just I love that and we didn't get to kitten kindy so you asked about that as well oh so yeah kitten, kitten kindergarten um, is something the idea comes from Australia from a veterinary behaviorist called Dr. Kirsty Sexel. And she had this idea of kitten kindergarten. And very often the way people do it is actually at the vet. So it's often something that vets will set up. And it's not quite like a puppy class, but it's kind of similar. So it's probably only like three sessions where the kitten, new kitten comes in with their guardian and they're not going to mingle with all the other kittens, but they will be in the same room as them. And it, partly it's an opportunity to educate the guardians, but also, of course, it's an opportunity for the kittens to have their first experiences at the vet be lovely, positive ones. Um, and the guardian gets to learn about how to handle them. So you will do some of those things that you might do at a puppy class that you might get them used to just like what it's like to have a vet exam, to have someone look at their ears and so on, or to have them be brushed, for example, and to teach them to go in their cat carrier because that's a really important thing to do. Um, and so it just helps it to give them a bit of a boost in their behavioral development. And I don't think there are a lot of places that offer them, but there are a few places here that offer them. And if, if it's an option that you're vet, then it's a really good thing to go and do. Wow, that's great. I don't even think we have one of those in Boulder and we're you know pretty progressive and we have one of the best shelters in the country here, but I don't think we have a kitty kindergarten and I might have to start suggesting that to our veterinarians. Yeah, that's brilliant. Especially, I mean, the story of trying to get your cat into a carrier is kind of the notorious struggle. And so teaching that behavior early on um, is really important. In the book, you go through a couple of different training plans for, um, for teaching a cat to sit pretty and to go into their carrier, and they're all rewards-based, force-free. Um, you touched a bit on it earlier, but why for cats is that approach and avoiding punishment so important for their well-being? Yeah, just like for dogs, it's really important to avoid punishment and to use positive reinforcement when you're training them. And we don't have as much research on cats as we do for dogs. So for dogs, we have a large body of research that shows that, unfortunately, if people use aversive methods to train them, um, it leads to increased risk of fear, anxiety, stress, pessimism, and a worse relationship with the guardian. And there's no reason to think it would be any different for cats. And there is some research that finds that when people use punishment with the cats, actually the cat is more likely to have behavior issues, including uh, toileting inappropriately in the house, unfortunately. And some of that is probably partly because the kinds of people who punish their cat probably don't really understand cat behavior as well as they might. But of course, it's also that it potentially it's going to be stressful for your cat. 
So if someone is using a shake can or hissing at their cat or spraying them with water, all of which are things that people used to think were acceptable to do to cats, it's just the same as with dogs. We now know that it's much better not to do those things um, because the risk is it's going to make the cat fearful or anxious or stressed. And also they're quite likely to associate that with you rather than with the behavior they were doing, in which case actually now they've got not got such a good relationship with you because they can't trust you. Sometimes you're nice to them and sometimes you're squirting them with water and that's a bit confusing and it's going to potentially affect your relationship with them. So it's much better to understand those behavioral needs like scratching, for example, that we talked about earlier, that it's no good punishing a cat for scratching in the wrong place. It's up to us to provide the right kind of scratching posts and then use positive reinforcement as well. And people don't seem to realize that you can train a cat with positive reinforcement, but of course you can. And you can use little tiny bits of food. Um, wet cat treats are a really good idea. Little bits of tuna or chicken or anything that your cat likes, but it has to be tiny because your cats are tiny. Um, so stick to tiny, tiny rewards. Um, and count it as part of their daily calorie content. And don't expect to train them for long at any time, especially as they're still getting used to it. Because if you think of cats uh, liking to rub their head on you, they're going to come, they're going to do something, they're going to earn a treat. They might need a little break to come and rub their head on you <laughs> before you go again. So just work in short sessions. And even for a cat who is terrified of their cat carrier, they can still be trained to go in their cat carrier, or you might prefer to start with a new cat carrier's um, and training for the new one. And research shows that when the cat has been trained to go in their carrier, um, they are less stressed on the way to the vet, they're less stressed at the vet, and the vet is more able to actually complete the exam that they want to do. So it makes a big, big difference. And it's one of those things that every cat guardian, I'm sure, has had that horrible moment where they get the carrier out, the cat disappears, you have to drag them out from somewhere and force them in, and it's just awful. And I've done that in the past too. I think everybody's done it. And learning that actually you can train your cat, it makes such a big difference. And it, it really is so much easier. So it's well worth doing. Yeah, it's important. It can be life-saving if it comes down to having a full exam at the vet versus the cat being stressed and not being able to examine the cat. Um, it's a really important skill. Yeah, and it's important too for emergencies, like if you think of if there was an earthquake or a forest fire or flooding or something like that and you needed to get your cat in their carrier, it's so much easier if you've actually trained them. And I hope never to be in that situation, but you can imagine that if you need to get your cat in the carrier in those circumstances, it's going to be much, much easier if you've already trained them. So it's, it's also a good thing to do, just thinking preventively about what might potentially happen in the future. Yeah, Definitely. our cat does not like the cat carrier, and I have done some work around it with him, but I'm going to go through your training plan and really get him to enjoy it more because he does have some health issues and he does go to the vet. And I think I read in the book that if they're, you know, calmer and have a better emotional response to the cat carrier, it also helps with that vet exam. So that could be a double win for us. Yeah, that's right. It, it really does help. And the other thing is that in the past, I used, I knew that it was a good idea to try and train them, but I didn't do it methodically. So I would put treats in the carrier and they were kind of trained to go in the carrier, but I hadn't worked properly through a full plan. And then when I actually started following a plan after I had learned more about dog training and I had a a proper crate training plan, actually following a proper plan and taking it all the way through is better than taking a haphazard approach of using some positive reinforcement, but not in such an organized way. It it just, it really helps. Okay. That's good to know. I'm going to, I'm inspired to do the organized training plan now. Um, I also noticed at the back of the book, you have a checklist for a happy cat. Um, and I was wondering if we could just quickly you know, talk about a few of the points on there. And is that available as a PDF or a resource for the general public? Or is it just in the book? I'm afraid it's just in the book. So if people okay. want it, they have to get the book. Okay. <laughs> Which but I think everybody should read this, even if you don't have a cat. Everybody should read the book. Yeah. <laughs> and 
Yeah, and part of the reason for that is because I think it makes more sense in the context of the book. Like the book explains why all of these things are being recommended. So it is the science of making your cat happy. It's full of practical tips, but it explains why you should do them and why I'm recommending them. And the idea of the checklist is that I think everyone will look at it and find things that they're already doing. And that's wonderful. So that will be some positive reinforcement. They're great. You should keep doing this. That's fantastic. And it will also have lots of things on it that people aren't doing and they can think about which of those things they would like to try, which of those things might be important to them or to their cat. And hopefully it will inspire them to pick something off the list and give it a try and see how it goes. Um, and like if it's more enrichment, for example, sometimes the cat doesn't actually love it to begin with and you have to think of ways to make it easier, especially food puzzle toys would be a good example of that because cats need their food puzzle toys to be super easy and full to the brim with trees to get them interested <laughs> at the beginning. So that's a common one where someone tries it, but they don't perhaps make it easy enough and you have to make it super easy. So there's lots of different ideas on there that people can decide which ones they think will work for them and give them a go. Well, honestly, I think the book is a book just anyone who adopts a cat should have or anyone who fosters cats. It's, And I'm sure it's going to come out in paperback soon. And I, I don't see any reason that every cat person should actually have this book because I learned so much and I thought that I knew a lot about cats. And, you know, when we know better, we do better. And we, we need to revolutionize the way we um, provide for our cats, I feel like, after reading this book. Thank you. That's lovely to hear. And I think there are lots of people who really love their cat and they would like to do more for their cat if, if only they knew that these were good things to do. So I hope it will help those people learn more about how to understand their cat and what will make their cat even happier than they already are. Yeah. I, That's wonderful. I love this book. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, Zazie Todd, where can our listeners find more about you and your books online? Your website, social media? Yep. So the book is available from all good bookstores and it's in hardback, ebook, and uh, audiobook versions at the moment, hopefully paperback in future. And um, you can get it from anywhere, basically. <laughs> and you can find out more about me on companionanimalpsychology.com. And I am also on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, and you'll find those links on my website. Well, Zazie Todd, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. The book is Purr, The Science of Making Your Cat Happy. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure to chat with you. Thanks very much. Thank you. I, I learned so much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked this episode, don't forget to rate and review. It helps other folks like you find the show. Thanks to Mike Pesci for the original music and James Ede of Be Heard for production. For show notes and transcripts, visit podtotherescue.com. Let us know what you think about this episode on social media. We're at Pod to the Rescue on Facebook and Instagram, and we love connecting with listeners. We'll catch you next time on Pod to the Rescue. Oh, and tell your dog we said hi. Hi.